I would I would say to them, you know, if you truly want to have deterrence and for space, um, you need to actually put your money where it needs to be, which is, you know, stop being afraid of the weapon systems issue because we're long past that that you know line has been crossed a long time ago. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hi, Downlink listeners. The Biden administration's financial year 2023 budget request dropped this last week, and that includes spending in the defense space sector. Here's a little warning. This episode has a lot of numbers and a lot of acronyms. It can't be avoided. For the Department of Defense, the administration is asking for $773 billion, or a 4.1% increase over the prior year, before accounting for inflation, which, as we've seen for February, is at a 40-year high of 7.9%. U.S. Space Force ask is $24.5 billion. That's a $7.1 billion increase, a whopping 40% more than last year. Until you realize $3 billion of that is for inter-service transfers. That's people and stuff from other branches, and that trims the bump to $4.1 billion, according to the U.S. Air Force Comptroller. That still seems like a big increase. But the Space Force, like other two-year-olds, requires nutrients to actually grow into the vision that lawmakers signed off on when they created the branch service. Does this budget request do the job? To answer that, here's my discussion with Chuck Beams, who before becoming the chairman of the board for York Space Systems and the Small Sat Alliance, was a Pentagon insider responsible for all space and intelligence acquisitions. And Peter Gerritsen and Chris Stone, both of them are Space Force think tank policy wonks and book authors and much more. Here's our discussion. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me to demystify the Biden administration's U.S. Department of Defense space budget request for 2023. Thank you for having Thanks. us. Thanks very much. Thanks. Nice to see you, Laura. Before we dig in, I'd like to take a moment for everyone to introduce themselves. And please don't be shy about highlighting your particular interest or background in DOD space and acquisitions. Let's start with the man with the most responsibility. Chuck, why don't you go first? Sure. Thanks, Laura. I'm happy to. Um, I, my name is Chuck Beams. Uh, I've been in the space business, I, I feel like my whole life. I, you know, uh, my dad was an engineer in the Apollo program. I actually watched Saturn V launches as a kid at the Cape uh, and then had a, a whole career in the Air Force uh, as a space guy, uh, both systems and operations, retired as a colonel. Uh, and then I was Frank Kendall's, um, I was his SES, I was his principal director for space and intelligence at the Pentagon for, for a, a number of years. And then I decided I want to do something completely different. So I went into the investment banking side of it. And, and I was uh, an asset manager, portfolio manager for Paul Allen for, for about four years and was responsible as the president of Vulcan Aerospace, um, did asset allocation for investment. And then did that for about four years. And now today I've been on my own and I'm uh, an investor and uh, executive chairman of York Space Systems, which makes satellites, these small kind of compact ones. 
Uh, I'm also the chairman of Small Side Alliance, which is a, an industry group of about 60 companies that are basically advocate, we advocate for the government using these kinds of things. <clears throat> and then most recently, uh, I made a move uh, to, of, to invest and I'm now the executive chairman of a company called Spider Oak Incorporated, which specializes in cybersecurity. Uh, it's an established company in the terrestrial world uh, and uh, I'm excited to help lead that company into on orbit for cybersecurity. So anyway, that's me. And Peter, first, congratulations on your book being added to the required reading list for Space Force Guardians. Tell us about the book and your podcast. Well, thank you, Laura. So the name of the book is Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space, which I co-wrote with Dr. Namrata Goswami. And uh, it basically lays out uh, what you can expect for the next 200 years, how great powers are going to compete over the, uh, the resources of space and provides the early indications of how that's happening. As you mentioned, I uh, run a podcast, the Space Strategy Podcast, which is part of the uh, American Foreign Policy Council's uh, Space Strategy Initiative. And there we try to get a bunch of big thinkers to basically lay out their visions about how space power is important. And uh, I also had a, a long career with the Air Force, got out, and now I'm a senior fellow in defense studies and co-director of the Space Policy Initiative at the American Foreign Policy Council. And last but not least, Chris, who is one of the most knowledgeable guys I know who's within arm's reach of me here in Washington, D.C. Tell us about what you're doing at the Mitchell Institute. Sure. Well, thanks again for having me. I'm Chris Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in Washington, D.C. We basically are there to advocate for helping the Space Force and U.S. Space Command have the resources and uh, concepts and capabilities that are necessary to achieve their Title X mission, and also um, publish papers and podcasts and things of that sort to help educate the public on this need. I'm also an Air Force veteran, helped with the establishment of the Space Force a few years ago in the Pentagon, was a political appointee in OSD space policy for a brief period, and um, I've also taught graduate school classes on space strategy. So while, while on top of that, still being engaged in the uh, reserve component as a uh, space operator. So I've been a little bit everywhere. The Space Force FY 2023 budget request top line of 24.5 billion looks big for a military branch that's roughly eight and a half thousand strong. And it's almost 41% um, over the FY 2022 um, budget. But that picture is not really accurate, is it? We've got inflation and a reorganization of the Space Development Agency that's going to include its budget line being added to the Space Force. Peter, you track this. What is your number one takeaway from this? Well, I think, you know, overall, it is, uh, it's heading in the right direction. You know, those of us who were proponents of the Space Force wanted to see a consolidation of space activities. So it's good to see that more and more things are moving over, the personnel moved over, that makes accounting easier, so it's more transparent. Space Development Agency is moving over, you know, that's appropriate so that we can see uh, how much is being spent. You know, if you look at the actual budget breakdown, you know, there, there clearly were some big winners though, 
in terms of like where is investment going. So you're right that you know somewhere on the order of say you know four billion or so is actually not new money. It's just being moved over, and probably the rest isn't a a, a real increase with seven percent inflation at all. I mean, if, if we really looked at it, we're probably close to treading water. But nevertheless, you know, the, there's some really interesting indications about where spending is going. So, you know, we saw about a billion increase in special and classified programs. A missile warning was the big, big winner with about two billion uh, over last year's budget. And SATCOM also is about uh, 50% larger than the previous budget. And then, you know, while while other things sort of held steady, you know, PNT was steady, launch was went down just a little bit. SDA had a, you know, a small increase from 448 to 466 million and space control uh, went up from 156 to 200 million. And so I think, you know, what you're seeing there is it, it is a reflection that the budget is clearly a reflection of the perceived threats, the threats of missiles and hypersonics, the import of, uh, of satellite communications and tying together the joint force in JADC2 and the importance of, uh, of space control and having uh, some tricks in the bag that aren't revealed. And Chris, you're an advocate of space maneuver warfare. What do you think of the request? Well, I think as Peter mentioned, there, there are some good parts to it. Um, but as he mentioned, it's, it's more treading water. And, and I guess one of the concerns that I had with it is, is as was mentioned, you know, three billion of the increase is due to transfers, the addition of military personnel, as well as inflation. So we're still at about 3% of the entire DOD budget. Um, and if you compare that with what the Air Force got, which was, I think, near 150, it just, it's, it's not exactly what I believe is necessary to deal with the threat. Now, obviously, what you saw with the missile warning is good, the SATCOM is fine. But again, based on what you see in this budget and in policy statements, is you're seeing more of a, of a focus on the old enable and support viewpoint versus providing deterrence and war fighting. And regardless of what a lot of the, the senior leaders have been saying about it being uh, a good budget based on the threats, it looks more like uh, more of a standard support budget than one that actually gets us to where we need to be from a standpoint of deterrence and war fighting advantage. Um, yes, there's a plus in the classified realm, but a majority of all that is still lumped under RDT&E, which, you know, space kind of has a special way of using that for various means, but it's it's just not where uh, I was hoping to see it. And there seems to be bipartisan consensus um, by members of both parties in the, in the defense committees that uh, they don't think it's a very good budget given the situation we're facing. So again, it's good to see a plus up in missile warning and tracking. It's good to see the launch still a thing, but when all you see is the standard old um, support functions being, you know, maintained, sustained, or developed a new replacement, and while that's all important, uh, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more meat and, and teeth to, to this uh, budget. Chuck, with your DAD background, and now that sure. you are the chairman of multiple space company boards, what in this budget request stands out for you? Well, I, I'll tell you what I like. I'll start with what I like about it. Um, I like the fact that much of the investments that were that began a couple of years ago in this sort of next generation space technology continues. 
And in fact, as Peter mentioned, moving SDA over. And my my understanding in talking to Frank Kendall, for example, is that 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 very much is the intent is very much to keep the idea of this rapid innovation thing going and leveraging commercial technology as much as possible. I, I, so I was actually pleasantly surprised to see that highlighted and actually sort of a, a little bit of an increase there. I, I, I like the, um, the fact that for the, um, for the strategic, well, it's, it's kind of like a breakout of, of the class, what they call classified communications, right? Uh, the fact that, that, that they're going to do that and they're going to fund that and they add it to that, I think is, is, is great because that, that is one of those, those areas that can leverage, and I'm, I'm biased because I'm a big proponent of, of this idea of the hybrid space architecture and this idea that we can really, there's a lot of bang for the buck if we, if we really think about uh, integrating the commercial more with, with the more traditional things. And, and this budget does do that quite a bit. So, so I'm actually very excited. Of course, I, I love space stuff. Would I like to see more money spent on space? Of course, but I also recognize that these are difficult times um, with, with budgets just generally, there's not gonna be, there certainly aren't gonna be, it looks like there aren't gonna be tax increases. There's a lot of pressure to, to bring the spending down. We are clearly in a, in an a very hostile environment like Chris mentioned. Um, and a lot of that's come up more recently. And, and so my understanding and my read of the budget is that it, it, it's continuing in a lot of the things that I thought began in the last administration and then, and it, and it does keep an eye on China because, as I've written about quite a bit in my mind, China is the more long-term strategic threat to space, spa, our, our space industry, uh, space superiority, everything cislunar. Really, I, I, I sort of see. I, obviously, I, I worry about Russia, right? Their, their inclination for ASAT tech and all that kind of stuff. But, and then the other thing I will say along those lines is. Um, you know, the, the, the single bit biggest threat to space systems is, is their is cyber attack, right? The, all the other things make the headlines, but really it's our vulnerabilities in that area that's, that's so, and it was when I was in the Pentagon, when we did all kinds of analysis, the thing that kept people up at night was cyber attacks on GPS and all these other systems. And I think that um, I'm told, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm told that, that they're, they're making some investments in that. Frankly, from a, an industry group perspective, what I'll be looking at is the, the actual execution of that, right? The budget seems like it's reasonable. A lot of it will be, in, okay, how, how is the, will the planning, what's Mike Gutlein going to do for this, this, this protected SATCOM, this tactic, they call it ESS, right? This, it's basically tactical level of uh, protected SATCOM. Um, I, because are they going to really continue to move the ball forward in a leveraging commercial everything, you know, with the, with the special sauce that they need for the classified, that's fine, but there's so much availability today. So those are my thoughts, Laura. Hey, Laura, if you don't mind me chiming in one, one more thing, just to make sure I don't sound totally negative. There was one thing I was pleasantly surprised to see, and I'm sure Peter was, was also pleasantly surprised with this administration's focus on climate. Um, I was pleasantly surprised to see some, some decent funding for space-based solar power which is something that I know he's been advocating for since he was on active duty um, back in the old days of National Security Space Office and things of that sort. Um, and that's been something that's been difficult to kind of get people in the building to take seriously. And now that we see the Chinese doing such things um, as well as helping us be able to project power overseas, including electric power, um, I think this is something that is a, 
a, a good thing that I'm I'm just very pleasantly surprised to see in the budget. You know, when the budget request was released, Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, said he has directed the Air Force and Space Force acquisition offices to structure programs in order to field meaningful capability as quickly as possible. Chris, how do you define meaningful capability and what in this budget gets us to that goal? And is there anything that doesn't? Well, I, I think that depending on who you talk to and who you're hearing this from, they'll have different definitions of what they mean by capability. Um, for me, obviously, you want to have the support infrastructure working and, and able to um, survive and, and help with the whole deterrence thing. But for me, one of my big things I advocate for, as you mentioned, maneuver warfare and other things, is the ability to actually deter and fight back um, if, if deterrence fails in space. And unfortunately, uh, with the policy language changing from a lot of it, from being deterrence and warfighting to enable and support again in the priorities framework and other documents that are coming out, um, it seems the budget kind of reflects that that shift backwards, if you will, toward um, the Space Force as more of a joint force support service rather than a an equal player. And I know some people probably don't see it that way, but from being on the inside as an operator, as well as watching the policy angle for the last uh, 12 plus years in DC, that's one thing that I see. So while I would love to see our shift to missile tracking, which I'm working on a report on something similar, um, I also would really like to see more overt counter space capabilities that are able to deal with, as Chuck mentioned, the China threat specifically, which is the biggest one, and also the Russian uh, avenues as well. So I, I think those are the areas that I, I think that we should see from a capability standpoint. And Chuck, you've written that for the Space Force to become a capable branch, it's going to need a rapid response inventory and infrastructure. Uh, for the uninitiated, could you explain what is rapid response inventory and infrastructure, and does this budget address that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I, I think one of the things that has been missing, and, and is this rapid capability, we've talked about it for, and, and these gentlemen uh, with me, they know we've talked about this for a very long time this ability to, to rapidly respond to a threat. And what that means is, and we can now do that in, in a way because these, these um, we can rapidly uh, launch now, right? For example, it used to be we had to plan years ahead for a launch. We, it, satellites themselves were very, very expensive. They were like a billion dollars a piece. Congress watched every dollar that was spent on each one of them. They would never allow any kind of inventorying of satellites or anything like that. Well, we're moving now to an era where satellites are very inexpensive, very capable satellites are very inexpensive. They can be, you can have some in some kind of a store forward type of inventory and be, be ready in the event that we either through natural or because of a, a, a threat, uh, we can re reconstitute. Um, and I think it's especially important for what we used to call the eyes and ears, right? The ISR kinds of capabilities that right now we're still in a mode where there's a handful of very exquisite ones. And this is, this is under the NRO. This is not under, um, this is not under the, 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 the Air Force, but, but it, it's all related. And if heck, just regular observers uh, map out, there's online, you can, you, can, you can see exactly what the orbits of these, of these satellites are. And if, if those were rendered uh, in op, we, we, we don't have time, we don't have 10 years to build another one of those exquisite things, right? But there are, as an example, just to take an imager as an example, 
There are imagers, York is building them right now. They're, they're not, it's exquisite, but they're pretty darn good. And we sell them commercially. And, uh, and having that combined with say a Virgin Orbit, uh, launch, rapid launch thing from, an, from, a, from a 747, we could immediately put something on orbit and plug it into the existing network, the existing structure to be uh, at least a fallback position. And, and I fear right now we don't have that. Uh, this particular budget, um, it, to my knowledge, it seems to be moving in that direction, but it, it definitely uh, has, is moving in the direction of the hybrid space architecture. There's many of the initiatives uh, in it include these, these kinds of attributes, specifically the inventorying ideas uh, both of, of these rockets and um, these low-cost rockets and these low-cost satellites. I don't think that's in there yet, but that's something we certainly will be advocating for in the future. The Space Force's budget request for its part of the DOD's missile warning and tracking system is $4.7 billion, and three-quarters of that is going to the next-generation overhead persistent infrared system. It's for the satellite sensors and ground systems that will make up that architecture. That's a billion-dollar bump, which feels huge, but with inflation, is it really enough? There's a fight brewing on Capitol Hill about the budget and inflation. This is open to any one of you. I'd be curious Peter's perspective on that one. Then Peter, it's yours. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the reality is that we've got a huge driver from the hypersonics and from, you know, general concern to be able to track, you know, missiles. That's a long way from being able to actually intercept or do something about them. And, you know, realistically, that may be costs that could be spent on more aggressive things. You know, I, I tend to personally think that our nuclear deterrent would hold. Um, I am in favor of a space tracking layer. I do wonder, you know, what the best way to, to do that is. But I think in many ways, there is, uh, you could spend that same amount on disruptive capabilities that I think would get us farther. And I, I would say it's not only about today's threats, it's also about the long-term opportunity. You know, when we, when we think about threats, I was uh, thinking what Chuck said, that cyber is the number one threat. And, and that probably is true to, to many of our systems. The only threat I think is bigger are continuing resolutions that uh, just destroy <laughs> uh, capability. Well, you know well that, that it was said by a, a smart person by the name of Mackenzie, and I can't remember her last name. Um, please forgive me. She is um, in a think tank here in Washington, D.C. But Eagle. she... Yeah, exactly. That's her. She said that budgets that don't account for inflation that we're just uh, that we're going to be on continuing resolutions. Just it's just going to be more formal, as in like law, because we're not taking into account inflation. I I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I I I can offer my sort of thought because this this ties to an earlier topic you brought up in my mind which is this idea of who the winners and losers in the, in the budget and all that. And I guess I don't really, I try not to look at, and, and I was in the Pentagon for way too long, as you all know, but I try not, and when I look at things now, I try to look at the winners and losers and do, are they, are these, are the folks that are putting together plans and the budgets, are they thinking? I'll give you an example. I spend today, when I, when I go and buy a MacBook Air, right, uh, which is what I'm, I'm talking to you guys on right now, I spent, a, a, oh, it's interesting, almost the same amount of money in actual dollars that I spent on my, I, my first IBM PC I bought in 1981, right? 
And but a a completely far more advanced capability. Why? Because it's a commercial thing, right? And 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 it's been able to ride the wave of the commercial technologies of of Moore's law and all that kind of stuff. And and that's why I think when I think about the winners and the losers and the budget stuff, I think about are people being smart to think about how you don't have to think of things in the old sort of Cold War way of looking at winners and losers of just what's the size of the defense budget, but are we doing smart things? I, I know we're not talking about NASA today, but if you look at what would, what would it be like, or even look at the Air Force, if, if we hadn't allowed, for example, commercial competition on launch, right? We'd be paying, I know, right? We'd be paying a, an insane amount of money for launch, but for the fact that not thinking of it in terms of winners and losers, and, and, and you know, this is when I was working for Frank, and, and, but and looking at what uh, NASA did with with the commercial resupply and, and giving them a shot, right? Giving giving SpaceX a shot at competing against these things. All of a sudden, what we always thought of as this monolithic, well, that's the budget. That's what it costs to do space launch. Now that's completely changed. And I think I think when we do smart things, and I'm not saying this this budget that we get here is perfectly smart. But when we think about stuff like that, we don't have to think about things so much winners and losers just because of the dollar amount that's 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 listed, it's loaded into a, a PE. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to follow up on that because I think you know commercial really is an important way forward, and I think this budget could have been way more aggressive on commercial. So the state of the space industrial base report had re recommended that the United States put aside a specific percentage of their buys for commercial, and recommended you know that. It, it ought to start at about a billion dollars. Yeah. Well, I am pleased to see that the commercial SATCOM office is there and funded, but it's only funded at 23 million, yeah. which is a long way from a yeah. billion dollars. And then, you know, when you look at integrating and putting up that hybrid architecture, all those new payloads, you know, the space test program is horrifically underfunded at a mere, you know, 25 uh, million dollars. Yeah. And you know, you look at the return, like, you know, one of the reasons why I'm bullish about the what the space development agency is doing is, you know, they're now funded for tranche zero and tranche one. And at the right. at the conclusion of that, the United States military, it's the Space Force by the time they come over, will have 156 new satellites compared yeah. to its current 77, right? They're really <laughs> bringing, you know, they, yeah. they're bringing it's really exciting. most of the Space yeah. Force satellites. And that was that's one of those things I agree with you, Peter. That's one of those things that was that got it. It really got traction uh, in the last administration, and a lot of us were holding our breath. We're like, "Oh gosh, I hope this doesn't become a political football where it'll it'll get, you know." Uh, and um, but it, it didn't. And and again, I, I agree with you, by the way, uh, Peter, on on that. I I'd love to see more of it. I'd love to see more of that. And frankly, there and, and it's not that commercial is the answer to everything because space, as as these two gentlemen know is far more than just the satellites. It's far more than ground, right? It's it's much more than that. And those things that are like this, the, the maneuver warfare in space, that's military stuff, right? And that's the kind of things that we do need to invest money in. And I haven't had a chance to really dig into that. Much of that typically is in classified lines. And, um, and I haven't had a chance to, to look at any of that yet. But but um, but I think that we, we, we really need to think about for those functions that we can, because it, it, it not only is it safe money in the near term, but it also makes us more competitive economically against China. We're winning with what makes America strong, which is which is private enterprise, private innovation, private capital, growing uh, companies, and 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 setting the setting the the, the table for the rest of the world that, on how to play. 
Yeah, and one other thing I'll add in is is I think you're seeing with the NRO kind of leading the way in many ways is the is the push to be more of a um, instead of a service provider, they're more of a service purchaser. Um, so for I, I've been with the NRO before in my past life, and I was very surprised when they launched a vehicle from a foreign launch site because yeah. just a few years ago that was, got I, that was a non <laughs> right well. <laughs> But before that, it was a non-starter. You know, they they would they would never have launched yeah, that. It, right. it was even difficult right. just to have meetings here in the in town um, to get people to think beyond the old established way of doing yeah. things. So it's it's starting. It's it's better than it was just even eight to ten years ago. But as Peter and Chuck have mentioned, you know, we definitely have some more to do to where we can buy some of those support services from the commercial and focus more on um, providing the ability to actually deter. And if that fails to fight and win, um, to make sure our space assets are protected and protected well. On Wednesday, uh, a handful of DOD space stakeholders are going to testify before the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Strategic Forces. Um, we've got policy, the Geospatial Agency, the Space Force, the NRO, and the GAO. And they're supposed to talk about the budget request and space programs. If you were any of them and also unbridled, what would you really <laughs> be talking about? And I'm going to give this first to Chris. Well, um, obviously unbridled within reason, but <clears throat> I would probably focus on the fact that one of the big things that I've seen is the importance of words and that words mean things and that it's one thing to salute progress where it's due. It's another thing to make it look like you're somewhere when you're really not there yet. Um, so hearing the phrase space superiority used, which has a, a meaning to military people, and then, but in reality, they're talking more technological superiority from the stance of the exquisite capability side of things. And as Chuck and Peter mentioned earlier, and I think I may have mentioned earlier too, is that's not going to keep them from shooting at you. And it's not going to keep you um, working when you need it, whether it's a crisis or just standard day-to-day -day things like GPS, which Russia has threatened to target all of them kinetically if they so choose. Uh, has been reported in GPS world and other places. So I would I would say to them, you know, if you truly want to have deterrence in, for space, um, you need to actually put your money where it needs to be, which is, you know, stop being afraid of the weapon systems issue because we're long past that, that you know, line that's been crossed a long time ago with with deep magazines of, of ASATs possible, cyber attacks, as, as Chuck mentioned, as well as lasers and things that, we've all experienced in one way or another as in our space careers. Um, it's time to stop the hand-wringing and actually start posturing ourselves a little bit more aggressively. Um, otherwise, we're gonna be behind the power curve. And once the, the shots start firing in earnest, which the Russians have been pretty restrained so far in Ukraine uh, with a minor, some minor uh, counter space activities, it's, it's not one of those things you can just gen up the industrial base and start pushing out airplanes. It's, it's a totally different thing, even with all of our improvements. So we, we really need to change how we're doing that and stop focusing on the old school support mode and get back into the, the warfighting ethos that is, that is necessary. And Peter, what about you? What would you say? Well, I think you'd find, you know, my talking points very consistent with my book that 
you have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes, we've got near and present, you know, threats that we have to take care of, but, you know, you've got to take care of the future and the fundamental investments in the future are basically in space access, mobility and logistics in maneuver. I think this budget's extremely weak there. You know, this past budget, you know, only because Congress added the Accelerate Cislunar and the nuclear propulsion technologies for Cislunar flight, you know, do we have anything? We have 130 million in the budget. That's that's a half a percent of the Space Force budget, which in my view is a pathetic amount of attention to the future. So I think, you know, they've got to really ride the wave on what is possible with commercial. I think they need to take the gloves off of the uh, commercial, uh, the, the ComSat office, which is really more than that. They are going to allow them to do a working capital fund. It needs to be broader. They are wanting to do multiple services, compute by data, all that. I'd say, you know, make it all uh, available. And apparently they've been discouraged from buying commercial launch, which I think is a, a mistake. I think that'd be super disruptive, uh, you know, to do. So, and then there's like, in my view, just sort of a huge missing piece, you know, like, how is it that this budget is not anticipating Starship? I mean, if we truly are able to, for $10 million, put a hundred metric tons and a thousand cubic meters, we've got to retool everything. I mean, that is, that's 20-fold the amount of launch that we're able to purchase today. We need to move to a launch on, on schedule so that, you know, build it and you will come. That would accelerate, you know, things like the hybrid architecture and what small sats can do. It would hugely accelerate what we'd be able to do in on-orbit uh, servicing, assembling, and maintenance, and in uh, propellant depots and all the things, nuclear space propulsion, which I should say that, you know, the, the DARPA space budget has gone down the past two uh, years, and, and that's, of course, you know, where, uh, you know, where part of our nuclear space propulsion is, is being held. So, you know, I think the real game changers the ones that industry isn't bringing. Industry is going to bring a ton of game changers in scale and speed, but the non-Moore's Laws technology, the place where, where the Department of the Air Force and the Space Force really need to do more is in power, propulsion, logistics, access to resources, and making sure that we're out there setting the conditions in the key terrain, not all of us having to respond to our competitors, but being there first and driving the initiative. And I would just, one more thing I would add from a historical perspective, I agree entirely with you, Peter. When the Air Force was a new service several decades ago, they were not in a very good, a good position to do much of anything because they let it kind of dwindle over time. And it took about 10 years with the Air Force through Strategic Air Command having the lion's share of the defense budget to build the force that served as a deterrent for nearly 40 plus years against major general war. Um, and as, as a standpoint of that, all those infrastructure and things, the bases and all that, that took time and it took a lot of money. And the country had the priority and vision at the time to see that was a need. And nowadays, uh, as you and I both probably agree, um, space is kind of the way of the future and the Chinese are not really having any inhibitions toward pursuing nuclear thermal and things of that sort. And they're already building architectures out in cislunar or com relay and other stuff to set the stage for themselves. So I agree totally with what you just said there on the future. Yeah, and just to amplify that, I mean, you know, you really hit it. What I think is the, the key lacking ingredient is, you know, when the Air Force was young, we really had the that service leadership being loud about their vision, not just for military 
the, the long-term future, you know, Hap Arnold's, you know, Toward New Horizons report, not just the long-term future for military aviation, but also for aviation generally and, and shaping the domain. And what we really haven't seen, uh, you know, out of the Space Force, out of the Space Command, or out of the Secretary of the Air Force is a vision for how they're going to develop the space domain. Um, you know, we basically left the field to the Chinese to define how they're going to develop it. And, you know, we have, we've offered no vision to help shape not just the vision of joint warfare, but the vision of what is the strategic terrain uh, of nation states for the next 100, 200 years. You know, uh, Laura, I, the, the thing I was going to I was going to add on there is uh, well, first, uh, I, I remember Peter when he was active duty and you asked us to be unbridled. And I, I don't think I don't think that gentleman ever knew what a bridle was, even when he was uh, active. duty. He's been never been one to uh, to be shy about speaking what he what the way he sees the world and the way it ought to be. And that's why we all respect him and continue to. Right. Um, and um, but I, I guess the one thing I would take take us back to is remember why the Space Force was created. And I'm not talking about the, I'm talking about, it really came out of the subcommittee, right? It came and, and the big thing, the big concern was, let's look at it. The Air Force, space is unique in that 80 to 85% of the money to do the mission, including operations is spent before the satellite actually gets on orbit, right? And, and the organization that's responsible for that, it was called SMC, now it's called Space Systems Command. And for 20, 25 years, it gets dragged up there and Congress, both sides of the aisle, you know, rakes them over the coals and asks them when, and, and every administration always says, this is gonna be the time we're gonna fix the space acquisition business. And so if I were the unbridled subcommittee chairman, I would say, I would ask, is, is, is this really going to be the year where you're going to fix these things and you're going to begin putting, bringing competition back into to competition, not just acquisition competition, but competition of ideas, right? Not just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. I think that's somebody's definition of insanity. And, and uh, you know, and, and, and these kinds of things, when are you going to actually do real industry surveys? When are you going to have uh, design reviews where you don't you don't have more government people than you actually have people that designed the satellite. When are you going to stream truly streamline the this 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 sort of acquisition thing? When is is this going to be the time that you do that? I'm actually very optimistic because we have Mike Gutlein as the new commander, and he's a very I met with him just recently. Very smart, very savvy, very business savvy guy. Frank Covelli, if he gets uh, uh, confirmed. He's a smart guy, an old NRO hat I've known since the early 90s. Uh, and Frank Kendall, as the service secretary, right? He's, he is a businessman um, and he is an acquisition guy. And so I think actually more so than budgets and all that, if, if uh, that, the budgets make great headlines because they're big numbers and they get clicks and all that. But actually, if this is the administration that can actually, not acquisition reform, nothing needs to be reformed. It just needs... Uh, it just needs a, a good shot of um, cortisone. I don't know. It needs some kind of a good shot of a steroid to, to jumpstart things and get things, make things happen, make things happen because it's it's it, it hasn't been for a long, long time. You know, I saw Chuck a an article that came out a few weeks ago. I think it was where supposedly some of the 
lower ranking folks in the Space Force were jokingly saying that the motto of the Space Force is Semper Soon or Semper Someday. Um, oh, God. Because of what you're talking about, about how, you know, we keep talking about fixing and doing and all these great things. And yet, you know, for every sort of reason that you can think of, budget, policy, whatever, lack of vision, something of that sort, that we end up always saying, like, yeah, we got to deal with this thing now. That, that it's always the near term issue. Or, or, or there's always the, there's the bureaucratic cover of let's we'll study it, right? Yeah, I published a piece. I published a piece. You, I know you guys read my stuff, and I published a piece about that. It's time we got to stop the studies and analysis nonsense, and let's get on to building things and deploying things. Uh, there's, there's lot that we have. That's how you solve the industrial base concerns. That's how you get you get a a, a, a space force of guardians that actually. Will will be motivated. They'll be excited. They won't be cynical, like like Chris just talked about. We we can't have a, a a new young service have be filled with cynical people because it like like Peter was talking about the early Air Force. They were not cynical. My dad was in the Navy at that time, and he talked. He 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 said that they were all jealous because the Navy had, or the Air Force had all the great stuff. The nation was excited about it. There was all kinds of things being published, like toward new horizons and 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 you know the, the the leadership was were they were they were on the covers of you know time magazine it was a big there's a lot of enthusiasm for that and, and i and i'm afraid that the um uh we 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 the window might be closing on that new you know the honeymoon phase right where we where we have this opportunity to actually set a uh, our own new horizon right for for the space and what it's about and people being excited about it and a big part of that is because 85 percent of all the money spent is spent out there in la and that's that's where much of the cynicism begins and and it, and it can permeate and that's what i fear so anyway that'd be my that'd be my unbridled thing how's that Laura? that's great Thank you so much, gentlemen, Chuck, Peter, Chris, for this fantastic discussion. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. Thank you. Take care, you guys. That's it for this week. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report's daily podcast hosted by Vago Maradian. And to keep your eye on what's happening in the maritime domain, check out Cava's Ships. You can subscribe to the Downlink podcast on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.